Martin Rees, welcome to Fritankepodden. Welcome to Sweden. Yes. It's very good to be here. Good to have you here. Um, you are an astronomer, a British astronomer, and you used to be president of the Royal Society, right? Yes. Uh, you spent all your life in science and in astronomy. What took you there? What kind of influences took you there? Well, when I was a kid, I was interested in nature. I was good at numbers, and I was told, therefore, to study mathematics uh-huh. when I went to university. And I decided I didn't like mathematics, um, and I wanted to find some way in which I could apply it to some real phenomena. And I first thought of economics, uh, which I think I would have enjoyed. Um, but then, for various reasons, I ended up doing a PhD in astronomy. And I was lucky in that respect because I was doing this in Cambridge University, which was one of the best places in the world to do it, and at a time when astronomy was very exciting. This was the uh, uh, mid and late 1960s. Yeah. And that was when we had the first evidence for the Big Bang, first evidence for black holes, and many other new things. And it's always good to go into a subject where new things are happening or new techniques because then the experience of the old people is at a heavy discount and you can quickly make a mark if you're young and so I was very lucky but I've been luckier still because the subject of astronomy has been moving very fast ever since if I think of the most recent five years there have been just as many great discoveries then as at any other time in the past so it's a wonderful subject for young people joining now as well That's interesting, but, but you, you, you mean that it was transformative years uh, when you were young for astronomy? It was way. indeed, because the first evidence for um, the black holes, yeah. the places where Einstein's theory was crucial, and very extreme phenomena that no one knew existed. Uh, you must tell me if this story is true that I've heard, that Fred Hoyle, the mm-hmm. astronomer, he, he objected to, to the uh, Big Bang theory, right? That's right, he had an idea which he called a steady-state theory, and that was that the universe was expanding, but that as it expanded, new galaxies formed all the time in the gap. So the universe existed from everlasting to everlasting forever, uh, always looking the same. And this was a very clever idea, and when he proposed it, it uh, was a tenable view, and the evidence against it came in the 1960s. Uh-huh, I and, see. Uh, I knew him in his later years. Indeed, I succeeded him as professor in Cambridge. Really? Yes. <laughs> did he ever accept the Big Bang Theory? Uh, he never did. It's interesting. He uh, ended up um, compromising with what I would call a steady bang theory, a sort of compromise. Um, but he never really accepted the Big Bang Theory, even though uh, most of us did, particularly after the evidence of the... Uh, microwave radiation, the so-called afterglow of creation, which was discovered in 1965. Uh-huh. That was the crucial evidence, and most people became convinced of the Big Bang then, but uh, Fred, who was already quite old, of course, uh, he um, didn't. And, of course, it's often true that very old people stick with their ideas, and the great physicist Max Planck said that uh, science advances funeral by funeral. <laughs> oh, that's... That's tough. But, I mean, is it true that, uh, is it true that he considered the Big Bang Theory uh, as some kind of crypto-religious idea that he, because he was a hardcore atheist himself? 
I, I don't think so. I think it was, uh, um, it was just that he, it was a very nice idea, and it was a very good idea because it could be, it could be tested, it could be refuted, and indeed it was refuted. Yeah. Uh, okay. So it was a good theory, and he was a great scientist. And of course, even though he's best known for that, his greatest work was um, something which I think is almost on a Darwin level, when he was one of the people who realized that all the atoms we are made of were created in stars. And when the stars die, they explode and they throw back the material into the interstellar gas and new stars fall. Mm. So each of us contains atoms from hundreds of different stars which lived and died more than five billion years ago before our solar system formed. So we are literally the ashes from long dead stars. We feel less romantic with the nuclear waste <laughs> and the fuel that made stars shine. Yeah. And that's a wonderful idea, which relates us to the stars more intimately than even the astrologers do. And Fred Hoy was the prime person who did that. Aha, uh -huh, I see. That's definitely a, a beautiful creation story yes, in yes, a way. It is. But, but I want to talk more about your, your childhood. I mean, your parents, what, what did they do? My parents were teachers. Okay. Yeah. So did, did they influence your curiosity, you would say? Um, well, they gave me a very happy childhood, and uh, uh, I brought up in the country, but they weren't scientists. And uh -huh. so I didn't have any particular mentors in science when I was a kid. Uh, but I was very fortunate in some school teachers. I see. And uh, so, so you were born what year? Were you? 1942. 42. So you don't, ex you don't remember the Second World War? No, no. No, okay. But so you grow up basically after the war, mm -hmm. okay. Mm -hmm. What kind of um, England or Great Britain, what was it like when you were young uh, to grow up in that country? Well, I was very nostalgic because I grew up in a very nice part of the, uh, of the country on the west of England, um, in a very nice village, and um, I had a very, very happy childhood. Um, and, uh, of course, this was a time when we had one of the best governments we ever had, the Labour government, which introduced the welfare state, yeah. and despite tremendous hardships, um, put through huge reforms, um, setting up the National Health Service, giving independence to India, mm. um, dealing with the start of the Cold War and everything like that. And uh, given the hardships, it's amazing what they did. Um, and, uh, of course, um, there was lots of rebuilding to be done after the war. And I remember seeing lots of bomb buildings when I was young, when I went to a city. Do you remember but, that? Uh, I remember being taken to Liverpool and places like that around 1950 when there was still evidence of the scars of war there. Um, yeah. Um, but, but I think um, uh, if we look back at how we recovered from the war, um, I think it was very impressive. Yeah. Of course, we weren't as badly hit as certain other countries on mainland Europe, but uh, I think we, we were lucky in our government at that time. Yeah, we had almost the same... I mean, we had the same kind of governmental guidance in Sweden during those times, mm. even though we were not in the war, right, as you know. Right, yes, yes. Uh, mm -hmm. But I, I do understand what you mean. And so what do you think about the Thatcher area that came later? Um, well, uh, I was rather opposed to it because I think it for the first time um, uh, gave people the idea that uh, um, your merit should be measured by your wealth and your salary. And also it uh, rather downgraded the whole idea of public service. Yeah. So I think that... Um, public life has been coarsened and weakened ever since Thatcher. 
Mm, I see. So I must regret her, ti- her time in, in office. And we must also comment on the current situation in Great Britain. I mean, yes. what do you think about the whole Brexit phenomena? Um, well, I, th- I think it's an appalling mess we've got ourselves into. Um, we had a referendum which was narrowly won by the uh, um, leavers um, after a very uh, unattractive and ill-informed campaign. And that's been dealt with by the present government in a deeply incompetent way. So um, at the time we're speaking, things are changing day by day. So I won't forecast (laughs) what it will be uh, like when someone listens. But uh, I think um, uh, we've got into a very serious state. And I think that if you were to take an opinion poll now, you'd find that more people support Remain than support any specific version of Leave. Yeah, and you so, think so for that reason, I would like to see us abandon the whole project. Um, if that doesn't happen, I hope it will be the softest possible Brexit, yeah. um, leaving uh, us as close as Europe um, as we are now, if possible. I mean, if you extend the whole Brexit uh, psychology to the rest of the world, I mean, what do you think about what's going on in the world now with Trump in America and with uh, Hindu nationalists in India and, uh, you know, Turkey and Poland and Hungary? Well, it's into a dangerous world. And uh, my strongest reason for being uh, anti-Brexit is that I think this is the worst possible time to weaken the coherence of Europe. Um, because uh, we can't rely on the United States anymore in the way we could in the past, uh, and we don't know what's going to happen in Russia, and we have this complicated multipolar world with all kinds of potential (coughs) instabilities. So um, for Europe to hold together as a moderate, liberal set of countries um, is, in my view, ever more important now. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Mm. Okay, turning to to your science interest. Uh, by, by the way, did you ever work with uh, Stephen Hawking, who recently died? Oh, I, 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 I knew him very well. I was two years junior to him. Uh-huh. And um, so we had the same PhD advisor. Uh-huh. Uh, I know him ever since. And, uh, and I gave the main address at his memorial service in Westminster Abbey. Okay, mm, I yeah. see, I see. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, I mean, he became very much of a cultural phenomena. Right. Mm-hmm. Would you say that he was a really great scientist as well? Um, he, was, he was certainly w- one of the uh, top-ranking uh, scientists in theoretical physics. Indeed, probably he did as much as anyone since Einstein mm-hmm. to deepen our understanding of gravity. But, of course, the reason he was so famous mm. was because this was achieved against the odds of great disability. I mean, yeah. uh, to take an example, I think everyone would agree that the, um, uh, the greatest theoretical physicist today is someone called Ed Witten. Ed Witten. Ed Witten. I don't suppose anyone's ever heard of him at all. I, I, uh, know, I no, know of him, uh, yeah. yes, <laughs> but, but he's not well known to the public. No. So um, the, the fact that uh, Stephen Hawking was such a cult figure was because um, he um, uh, exemplified achievement against the odds um, and uh, everyone uh, admired what he had done and uh, that, of course, boosted his books, and he became uh, probably the best-known scientist of his era. Since, since Einstein, yeah, yes, probably. Yes. That's, true. Yes, That's yes. probably true. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you mentioned Ed Witten. Uh, do you know him as well? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, what is his big achievement? Um, well, I mean, I think he has been the leader in ideas in string theory, yeah. and this is very technical. And I suppose you could say that um, uh, he hasn't had 
any final achievement because no one knows whether string theory is correct. No. But I think everyone accepts that he has had far more insights into the mathematics and he's both a great mathematician and a great physicist. Mm. Are you still, uh, are, you, are you yourself, I mean, uh, uh, a follower of the string theory? Do you believe in that theory? Well, I mean, uh, I, I'm not an expert in it at all and I think we don't know whether to be right or not. Um, I think it's... Uh, um, I don't agree with those who uh, disparage those working on it. I think it's great that people are trying to work on this challenge. Um, but, of course, um, uh, uh, it may be wrong, um, and um, let's hope it's correct. But there's an intermediate stage, which is it may be right, but it could be that it's too difficult to prove it's right, because mm-hmm. there are some calculations which no human brain can do, and maybe it'll need AI. Um, and um, uh, the physics of string theory involves complicated geometry in 10 or 11 dimensions. And it may well be the case that the theory is true, but we never actually have a sort of insight into why it's true. But nonetheless, it may be that computers will be able to do the calculations that humans can't and find Uh, evidence for its truth uh-huh. and that evidence would have to be that it um, manages to uh, predict correctly some things we can measure like yeah. the uh, the mass of the proton the properties of neutrinos or something like that yeah, yeah. Uh, but at the moment the people work on string theory accept that they're very far from uh, bridging the gap between this exotic physics at extremely high energies and densities yeah. um, and the everyday world Yeah, well, it, I'm not at all an expert on spring, string theory, but does it unite relativity and quantum mechanics? Yes, yes, th- that's the main aim. It, it would be the, the final theory unifying uh, the forces of uh, nature. Yes. Okay, mm-hmm. but but then I must ask you. I mean, I just read a book about quantum quantum theory and yes. about these strange phenomena like entanglement and, yes, and yes. things like that. Yes. Uh, even if you have a theory that unites it with relativity, do you uh, do you think that we ever can have an intuitive uh, sort of description of quantum theory? Maybe not. I think that's a very important point, that uh, um, our brains evolved to cope with the everyday world, and we have intuition into uh, the physics of the everyday world. But uh, um, we don't have intuition into um, the micro-world of the quantum, no. um, nor some of the cosmos. Um, but in a way, we shouldn't be surprised. In fact, I'd turn this over and say it's amazing we've got even as far as we have done mm. in understanding quantum theory. We shouldn't be surprised at the mystery. We should be surprised at our brains, which haven't changed very much since our ancestors live, lived on the African savanna, are able to um, make some sense of these counterintuitive worlds. And string theory is much further away still. Um, the scale on which it operates is a trillion, trillion times smaller than an atom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, True. And so it's very, very far from uh, experience. Because it seems like the entanglement phenomena, for example, that you have to give up the idea of locality. I yes, mean, yes. And it's so counterintuitive. Mm, yes, yes. Um, yes. But it's, it seems to me, just by reading some books, popular science books, that the idea that our consciousness interferes, they, it starts to be abandoned. Is that correct? Well, I think so. That's the, so, the so-called Bohr, Copenhagen interpretation, yeah. which is that the observer is a crucial role. Yeah. And there have been other interpretations trying to avoid 
that. Um, but I think the final word has not been said on the best interpretation of quantum theory. Uh, on the other hand, it may be it'll never seem intuitive to us. That's true, that's true. Because this, this uh, consciousness involvement, it's, to me it sounds a little bit New Age uh, in a way. Yes, and of course there have been people who have tried to uh, link um, quantum theory to oriental philosophy. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think there's very much in that. No. Um, but, but I think um, we, we ought to bear in mind also, and this is uh, something which I think astronomers are especially aware of, is that there's no particular reason why humans and their brains should be matched to understanding everything because a monkey can't understand even Newton's mechanics. Um, but it, it applies it, of course, but it doesn't understand it. Um, and so there's no particular reason why we should um, expect to understand all the deep aspects of reality. No. And, of course, one thing we know as astronomers is that um, uh, not only are we the outcome of four billion years of Darwinian evolution, but that the sun is less than halfway through its life, and uh, uh, we may be the halfway stage of evolution and uh, could be surpassed by things as different from us as we are from slime mold. <laughs> No, that's true. I mean, I talked to an evolutionary biologist the other day. He said that our intellect is not there to understand reality. It's there to survive. Of course, yes. And it's had <laughs> As a side effect, it's, yeah. it's, we understand reality because yes, it's often good to do that, to survive, that's but right. not always. <laughs> yes, and it's surprising how far we've got. Yeah. Um, but, of course, um, future evolution is not going to be Darwinian selection. It's going to be... Um, Uh, what I call secular intelligent design. It's going to be humans designing um, um, cyborg um, uh, electronic brains um, and maybe those brains then designing even better ones themselves. So future evolution uh, will be uh, on, of a different kind from Darwinian selection and it will be much faster. That's a very interesting topic, and I, I must tell you, we, we publish a magazine called Sons, uh, and the latest issue... We have Francis Arnold on the cover, who won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry yes, this yes, year. Yes. And we said, the Nobel Prize to intelligent design. And that's, of course, a joke, but yes, because yes, she yes. is doing intelligent design, yes, because yes, she, right. she sort of um, uh, she affects the evolutionary process. Uh, that's why Which she right, got... That's, right, yes. <laughs> that's real intelligent yes, yes, design. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, of course, um, w w what's going to happen is that um, uh, we will be able to redesign animals and ourselves. And this raises all kinds of ethical problems as well. That's true. Um, and um, I discuss these in my book a bit. And I, I, I think that as far as human redesign happens, we ought to try and regulate this on Earth. But if there are people who end up living on Mars by the end of a century, then we should wish them good luck in using all these techniques because they are ill-adapted to living on Mars. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, they will be away from the regulators And so they are going to be the creatures who trigger the emergence of a post-human species. And if that species is um, electronic and not organic, then, of course, they no longer need an atmosphere. They may prefer zero gravity, and so they will go off <laughs> into deeper space. Yeah. And if they're immortal, then a long interstellar voyage is no deterrent. 
So that's the long-term future, in my opinion. <laughs> We should talk about your new book because that's also why you're here in Stockholm to talk about your new book. In mm -hmm. English, it's called "On the Future," mm -hmm. and in Swedish, "Om Om Framtiden," which means exactly "On the Future." Um, and you talk about a lot of different things mm -hmm. in the future and your your reflections on what's going on. And um, let's let's stick to what you just mentioned: artificial intelligence. Do you think that we will develop? AI that will be conscious? I think we don't know. Mm. I mean, uh, this is a philosophical question, really, and I, I, I don't think we know that. that. Um, and even if we had an AI which simulated human abilities and behavior, we still wouldn't know. And, uh, no, that's this, it. Is, this is a basic philosophical question. Yeah, um, because we would never know if they are conscious or not. No, we, we wouldn't. And uh, but I think what's interesting is that uh, uh, through these developments, like AI, then um, and in, in biology, uh, issues that were really those for academic philosophers now become part of practical ethics. I mean, one obviously is the extent to which it's ethical to redesign or enhance human beings. Um, but the other is uh, whether, if these robots seem to be intelligent, should we have obligations towards them? I mean, we feel that we have an obligation to help other humans and even some animals to fulfill their potentialities. So should we feel concerned if these robots are underemployed or bored? Uh, we, don't, we just don't know. Um, but, but these are serious issues. Yeah. And, and also another issue is that... Um, Uh, if it ever became possible to um, download your brain into something electronic, which um, may be impossible, but some people talk about it, then you have to ask, in what sense is that still you? Mm. Would you be happy for your body to be destroyed if you were told that your brain was somewhere else electronic? And what would happen if many copies were made of you? Mm. Which one would be you? So these are issues which philosophers talk about, of yeah. personal identity. Yeah. But Derek the, Parfit wrote about that. Yes, th that's right. And, uh, and these will become issues of practical ethics, perhaps, one day. But, but what's your personal opinion? I mean, I know Derek Parfit has in his book Reasons and Persons, he's got yes, this yes. Uh, teleportation thought experiment yes, where you, right. you go into a machine and you well, get... Th th that's just, yes, what, would you be happy to then be destroyed? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what's your opinion, your personal opinion? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I know I personally would not be happy, but, but that's a, just a gut instinct. I mean, yeah. it, it, it's a serious philosophical question. Yeah. You know, to, uh, to, to what extent um, our personalities um, are embodied in the circuit of our brain, or are we so closely linked to our physical bodies and our sense organs that it would not make sense to say that this brain was the same person as us but if i if i ask it in another way mm. i mean if you if you completely scan your body atom by atom yes. and you rebuild it atom by atom yes, yes. would you say that it's a complete replica of you to 100% or not what's your personal opinion well i mean if if you could replicate the whole body atom by atom uh, th then i would say yes yeah mm -hmm. so you, you have no I but but I, but i think that probably is physically impossible on fundamental grounds. Yeah, yeah, okay. That, mm. that, that, okay. Because of quantum uncertainty and things like that. Mm. Yeah, mm. that's right. But that, that means that you have no, you have no uh, view of uh, immortal soul or anything like that, it sounds like. 
Is that correct? Uh, that's far too deep for me to discuss. Okay, okay. I'm asking because I know that you were awarded the Templeton Prize a few years ago, yes, and yes. that's an organization giving prizes to scientists, but the organization itself has some kind of religious agenda, right? Yes, yes. Um, how do you feel about getting the Templeton Prize? Well, one of the things they support is big questions, mm. and uh, I have worked on big questions in most of my career, and they have sometimes given it to people of that kind. In fact, uh, uh, the great physicist Freeman Dyson got it a few years before me, and when I got mine, he wrote me a note saying that he felt better about his, because he'd done as little to deserve it as I had. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm in good company with him, and uh, uh, Charlie Towns, the inventor of the laser, who got it. Um, so um, uh, uh, I... I feel I'm in very good company, but as you say, it's a prize which has been given to um, um, a whole lot of people, Dalai Lama and people like that, yeah. and uh, a number of uh, uh, more mystical people, and of course many people who've done a huge amount of practical good. Yeah, yeah I see what you mean. So I understand you are saying that you... So I, I disagree with those who uh, deride the prize. I think it's... It, um, um, I, I think it's a entirely respectable mm. uh, award. But you don't really necessarily support the religious agenda of the Templeton organization. Well, I, I myself have no religious uh, beliefs. No. Um, I'm, uh, I'm supportive of religion. I wouldn't want to do anything to weaken mm. the beliefs of those who have them. But I don't have any uh, doctrinal beliefs, although I support the idea of um, practicing the, the religion. And mm. uh, I um, am very happy to go to the um, English church in which I was brought up um, because I think it keeps us together. Uh, I think also that uh, it's the outcome of generations of aesthetic uh, mm. um, creation, the architecture and the music, yeah. and I wouldn't like to see it die out. So I'm, uh. I'm supportive of it, but I have no dogma. If I'd been brought up in Iran, I would probably go to the mosque in the same spirit. Yeah, I see what you mean. So you, you, I understand you're saying that you support the social, cultural, yes. aesthetic dimensions of religion. Yes, yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. I understand what you mean, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk more about your book. You, 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 you talk about so many existential threats and possibilities for, for mm -hmm. humankind. One, one thing that I found interesting is you talk about the risk of getting hit by an asteroid. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, actually, it's actually happening. I mean, 1908, I think it was in Siberia. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, an asteroid uh, hit the Earth and yes, yes. Uh, created quite a lot of destruction. Hundreds of Hiroshima bombs of strength. Yes, yes. But fortunately, it didn't kill anyone. Because yeah, it because yes. it was Siberia. Yes, but yes, yes. if it had been in London. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, uh, of course, when I'm an astronomer, the first thing people always ask about is asteroid risk. Yeah. And I say it doesn't keep me awake at night. Okay, um, good to hear. They, they are the risks that are best understood. They're easier to quantify. We know roughly how how many um, asteroids of different sizes impact the Earth every century or every millennium, and uh, we can work out the chance that we be killed by an asteroid. Yeah, um, it's about one in a hundred thousand. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, but but that uh, risk is dominated by the occasional very big one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But 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 are there something we could do about it? I mean, uh, well, th there are things we can do about it, and in fact, there uh, one thing which is being done already is trying to um, um, discover um, all the asteroids bigger than 50 meters across, 
and to follow their orbits mm -hmm. so that uh, uh, if there was one which seemed to be on a collision course with the Earth, we'd at least have warning and may actually be able to deflect it. Uh -huh. We can't now, but within 50 years we could. Um, so this is, this is worth doing. I think it's worth a modest expenditure, but um, it's not the biggest risk because the main things that worry me are the risks which are caused by human beings. The asteroid risk is no bigger than it was for the Neanderthals or the dinosaurs. Mm. Um, but um, uh, I think uh, the things we need to worry about which are far more serious than that. Um, a nuclear war, for instance, mm. uh, the chance of a nuclear war during the Cold War era, um, which would have um, devastated the whole of Europe, um, was, many people said, about one in three, or something like that. Um, so that's a very, very high risk. Mm. And uh, in my book, I really discuss two classes of, of threats. First, the ones that we are causing collectively by there being more of us on the world with heavier footprints. And these are the effects we're having on the climate. Global warming. Y yes, and the effects on the environment causing extinctions and mm. it's depleting resources. Uh, and there we can make some predictions. That's one class. But the second uh, class of concerns is that new technologies are running away so fast that it's hard to know if we can control them properly. And one obvious concern is that they empower individuals or small groups yeah. um, to uh, trigger something by accident or by design that could cascade globally. We know already that uh, um, a kid can do a cyber attack which can have effects in a different continent and that phenomenon is getting more pervasive and stronger. So one of my worries is that uh, we will have these new technologies, bio, cyber and AI, which are very, very powerful, and um, we will have a big problem of controlling them. Mm. Uh, there'll be an issue of governance where we have to trade off the balance between privacy, liberty and security. Mm. Um, because, um, as I put it in my book, the global village will have its village idiots, and they have global range, and we can't tolerate more than one or two of them. Mm -hmm. And it's not like nuclear weapons, where you can have a verification regime because it needs something almost as big as a state to produce a nuclear weapon, large, conspicuous, special purpose facilities. But um, in order to produce a bioweapon, uh, you need some expertise, but you need the kind of equipment that's available in university labs or in many mm. industries. Um, and of course, we already know that um, uh, a clever person can do cyber attacks, yeah. etc. And uh, I think um, we're going to have a bumpy ride simply because it will be almost impossible to prevent this happening at a higher and higher rate. Yeah, I understand. And also AI getting in control uh, by terrorists, for example. I mean, yes. they could create drones with uh, face recognition systems yes. that shoot people. Mm. And, and that's right. Yeah, yes. um, mm -hmm. So that's probably a much more... Um, well, or maybe armies are doing that anyway. Sorry? Maybe state armies are doing that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a big issue about... Um, Robotic, robotic weapons. Mm. But um, another issue that you bring up is in, the, in your book is the, the fact that AI will take a lot of jobs from humans. <coughs> mm. uh, what do you think about that problem? Well, it'll, it cer it'll certainly take, take jobs. It'll take, it'll take um, manufacturing jobs. It'll take jobs like call centers, 
mm. uh, work and uh, warehouse work. It'll also take some um, sort of professional jobs like mm -hmm. um, accountancy, mm. um, legal work, radiography, and even perhaps surgery. Uh, there's some so-called blue-collar jobs it won't take so easily. Um, plumbing and gardening, for instance. <laughs> They're so non-routine, they'd be very hard to mechanize, and they involve interaction with the complex external world, which machines are still bad at. But clearly there'll be massive redeployment. And I think the answer to this um, uh, is that the owners of the robots, the big companies, they need to be heavily taxed. We need a redistributive tax, and we use, need to use that mm -hmm. to set up huge numbers of jobs of the kind where the human um, uh, character is crucial. In particular, carers for old people, assistants for teachers, um, uh, custodians in public parks, and people like that. And this is a win-win situation because it's surely far more dignified um, to work caring for people than to work in an Amazon warehouse or in a call center. Mm. And mm. so um, if the money can be redistributed and we can have publicly funded, more stable and better paid work for carers, so mm. not just the rich, but every one of us when we're old can have a human carer, mm. supplemented maybe by robots, then that'll be a better world all round. Mm. And um, I can frankly see more chance of that happening in Scandinavia <laughs> than in the United States or even in my country. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. why, why do you think so? Well, because you're prepared to have a higher um, percentage uh, tax, oh, okay. public expenditure. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it's at 51% here, whereas 39 in the United States. And, uh, and do you believe in the welfare state? Mm, okay. Mm. Uh, what do you think about uh, technology merging with biology? I mean, you create sort of technological mm -hmm. body parts mm -hmm. or even uh, cognitive extensions. Yes, yes. What do you well, think? I think that's very exciting. That's going mm. to happen. And um, I think um, it's going to raise some ethical issues about to what extent we should allow this to happen. I mean, obviously, everyone's happy about gene editing if it's a matter of removing one gene that gives you propensity to a fatal disease, but uh, if we can actually um, identify the combination of genes which uh, goes with intelligence or good looks or something like that, then it's going to be a question of whether we should adopt uh, those procedures, even though I think they will be possible. It will be possible to use AI to um, analyze tens of thousands of genomes to see which combination gives a certain um, uh, good quality, and then to synthesize the genome with that combination. Mm. So we can't do this yet, but this is going to be possible. But this will raise a new set of uh, ethical issues. Yeah, um, yeah. And, um, That's very interesting. Uh, and it will, of course, create both ethical and legal issues. Of course, yes, yes. But and, uh, <laughs> and, of course, possibly a more fundamental kind of inequality mm. if these techniques are only available to the wealthy. Yeah. And, um, of course... Another uh, thing that many people want is a longer lifespan. And uh, th there again, uh, there are lots of rich Americans who are <laughs> supporting ways of uh, extending your lifespan or seeing whether aging is a disease that can be cured, as it were. Um, if they could, that might be a good thing, but of course, 
it would lead to a very fundamental kind of inequality if only a few people had access to that. Yeah, technology. yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah. Um, I must ask you uh, about if you're going back to your sort of uh, special field of astronomy, mm-hmm. do you think that the knowledge of black holes and all these things and, and theory of relativity will ever make it possible for us to travel in time? Well, um, um, of course, we've known since Einstein 1905 that we can fast forward in time by yeah. going at the speed of light. Okay, but, but going but backwards. Going back in time, um, I think um, uh, most people think that it's in principle impossible, mm-hmm. um, although that's not been proved. But we do know the technical problems. You would have to um, uh, create a black hole of at least 10,000 times the mass of the sun, uh, made of some exotic materials that don't exist, in order mm-hmm. to hold open a wormhole, linking it to some other space. So uh, there are theorists who talked about what a time machine would be, um, but uh, we don't think it's feasible. Um, and there may be some fundamental um, law, what Stephen Hawking called the chronology protection law. Because it seems like it would create some logical paradoxes, even if it was possible in theory. Well, it it, it would, uh, unless somehow we were constrained. I mean, obviously, you you can't uh, shoot your grandmother in her cradle and things like that. Mm. Um, but uh, um, you, you could imagine a loop in time which closes up in a consistent way, and there have been some stories of this kind. So <laughs> if if there were the possibilities of what are called closed loops in time, uh, then there would be a constraint on, uh, on freedom and what could actually happen mm-hmm. uh, in order to avoid those kinds of inconsistencies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's feasible. Uh, w- what is perhaps uh, uh, somewhat more um, uh, feasible is um, uh, being able to extend the lifespan or having electronic entities that are nearly immortal, which would mean it would be possible to travel um, between the stars. Yeah, yeah, okay, I see what you mean. Mm. Uh, another more fundamental philosophical mm. question is, do you, do you believe that we have free will? Well, I'm, I'm what's called a compatibilist in that I, uh, I, I, I do believe that um, uh, I am right to behave as though I've got free will and I couldn't do otherwise, um, although uh, one realizes that these are deep philosophical paradoxes. Because there, I mean, well, we know we know that in fact we don't have quite as much free will as we think we have. No, that's because, true. Because uh, you know you, you can uh, look at people with, with brain damage and all that. So so we we, we know that we um, aren't always responsible for our actions. But I think um, uh, um, you've got to believe that you do have it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's true, obviously. But uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the psychological experiment done at the Lund, uh, University of Lund called choice blindness, where you, you let people choose between t- quite complicated yes, yes. political decisions, mm-hmm. uh, di- dilemmas, and then they, you make them believe that they choose A, but they actually choose B, because you, f- you, you fake the sort of copy, mm-hmm. carbon copy. And then you, then you ask them, uh, why did you choose B? And they they start to explain that yeah, even yeah. though they actually choose A, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they create yeah, yeah. rational reasons yeah. afterwards. No, that's true. Yes, and there's another uh, issue which is that the uh, um, uh, our conscious awareness has a time lag yeah. from actually making the decision because uh, the famous experiments done about 50 years ago about um, uh, people actually 
having decided before they're aware they've decided. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's Benjamin so Libby. Libby. Yeah, that's yeah right. exactly. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So, so obviously... But we I think we're just at the very beginning of understanding the brain, and uh, that's the hard subject. I always, when I talk about physics and astronomy, I always say they are the easy subjects, mm. um, and that even the simplest insect is harder to understand than anything uh, in astronomy, a <laughs> galaxy or a star. Yeah. Um, and incidentally, that's the reason why the phrase theory of everything is unfortunate because when we talked about string theory we said that that will unify the four forces of nature yeah but um uh, it will but that'll be no help at all to the 99 percent of scientists who are neither particle physicists nor cosmologists because the challenge for most of science is to understand things that are very complicated yeah especially those that are alive mm. and so um uh, only a few scientists really care about these these fundamental things. Mm. Do you think that we ever ever will have a theory of consciousness that completely describes the phenomena? I don't know. I mean, it it, it, it we, we could, but that may be one of the uh, things which is just too hard for the human brain to ever mm. understand. Mm. So, if you if by we you mean human beings, yeah. I think it's not at all clear. No. Okay. Mm. Okay, one, one last question. Um, uh, how come that you engage in so many issues that is outside the area of astronomy? Because you are an astronomer, but you, you, you write yes. about many, many other things. Yes, how yes. did that come about? Um, well, I've always been interested in, in politics and social matters, but I think um, more specifically, um, I have had opportunities to engage. I was involved in hogwash conferences in the 1980s, and um, I became as you mentioned, president of the Royal Society, which is uh, our Academy of Sciences, mm. which, of course, uh, gave me an obligation to uh, yeah. think about all the applications of science and their policy and ethical aspects and the chance to get to know leading people across the whole of science. It's the oldest scientific uh, organization, isn't it? Um, well, one of them. It's the... Yep, yep, the with, with Isaac Newton as the first president uh, he wasn't the first he wasn't the first but he was the president okay okay, okay. <laughs> um, but um uh, it's one of one of the oldest it was founded in 1660 yeah um and uh, uh it's uh, it's one of the the main academies of the world and uh, through being president of that obviously i got engaged with international science yeah. and policy um and uh, i've been a member of the uk's house of lords yeah for the last uh, 10 years and that's also given me an obligation to get involved. So um, I've had the chance to uh, get involved with these things and the obligation to do so. Um, and uh, th that's why I give lots of talks, and of course um, they have uh, gelled into articles and, and then into my books. And my, my new book does cover a lot of topics. Mm -hmm. um, it, uh, uh, the first part is about the, um, uh, uh, the future that we can predict a warmer world, a more crowded world, a possibly depleted world. And, and then I talk about uh, new technologies and how we can cope with them. And then I talk about our future in space. And then at the end, I talk about the obligations of scientists. Um, because uh, if you're a scientist, then uh, um, uh, you may be the first to predict how your discoveries can be used. Mm. And um, uh, although you're the expert in science, you're not the expert in ethics. Mm. So it's very important that scientists should interact with a wide public um, in, uh, and also with politicians. And the last part of my book addresses how best to do that. Mm. Finally, are you an optimist about the future? Well, I would describe myself as a technical optimist 
but a political pessimist oh. in that I think the, uh, uh, the potentiality of technology um, for um, communications, for health, for clean energy and all these things are tremendous. But what worries me is that I don't see much evidence of ethical progress in that the gap between the way the world is and the way it could be is getting wider, not narrower. Mm. It's true that we are better off than we were in the Middle Ages, <laughs> but in the Middle Ages, they couldn't have done very much to improve things. Uh. Whereas now, although we are better off than they were, um, uh, the potential is far, far greater. And I think it's an ethical indictment that we are allowing this gap to get wider. And in particular, um, these inequalities, not only within countries, but even more between countries. Mm. Um, mm inequality between the average person in the middle of Africa and the person in Europe or North America. Mm. Okay. Okay, uh, Martin Rees, thank you so much for talking to me and coming to our pod. Very good. Good to be here. Thanks. Thanks.